This is a story set firmly in Kentucky bluegrass. A story that swirls around a woman, a retired history professor, who finds herself in one murder mystery after another. We're talking with the author of the Josiah Reynolds Cozy Mystery Series on this Desideratum. Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. It was sort of like Moses in the wilderness. I felt compelled to go up the mountain. So <laughs> This is Abigail Keem, and we begin our conversation with something we have in common with her main character. I became a beekeeper 25 years ago. I was a photographer. I retired from that and started keeping bees, honeybees full time. And um, I started selling honey at the farmer's market, like my protagonist, Josiah, does. Yeah. Let me tell you, a farmer's market is a hotbed of conspiracy. (laughs) It's not as jovial as you think it is. Uh, And uh, in Kentucky and Lexington, we have a lot of quirky characters, real-life characters. So I was able to draw and observe. And I worked there for about 12 years. Wow. And I kept these for about 12 years. I built up a clientele, but I had always wanted to write. And I had written since I was a child, uh, stories, you know, and I was writing and I was writing series, but I couldn't break in to any of the publishing houses. And when I came up with the idea for Josiah Reynolds, a middle-aged beekeeper who turned sleuth, uh, nobody wanted to publish her. Mm. So um, I finally decided, well, the new technology had come out. And I said, well, I'll just publish myself. So I formed my own publishing company and I just published myself. And uh, she was a hit. I'm now on the 18th book and people adore her. She's irascible, but uh, she's very kind hearted and she has all these animals and she has these really weird friends. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And everything I put in about beekeeping is is dead on. Yes. So I have to tell you that I, in 2010, became a beekeeper. Oh, okay. We we moved on to this little parcel of land and I had um, a little tiny barn. And I remember going to the um, the county fair and thinking I could do, we could do anything, you know. And I, like you, felt really drawn to the honeybees. And I think part of it was at that time, there was a real awareness spreading about the plight of the bees, right? Yeah. That year, I can remember there being a lot in the news even about the danger of, of honeybee colonies collapsing. Yes. And also this idea that they might be like a canary in the coal mine, right? Like is something else bad happening in our food system, in our ecology in general. So I was drawn to them and I think it was sort of a public awareness sort of campaign that maybe was part of my uh, initial 
jump into it. But I, like you, I found that selling honey in farmer's markets and even interacting with beekeeping clubs, there were a lot of characters, (laughs) a lot of really interesting people go into beekeeping. I remember in my beekeeping club, I was always searching for best practices. I was always wanting to know, well, what is the best way to do this? What's the most effective way? And you would ask five different people and you would get five different answers. You know, everyone had, everyone's own personality really came to their beekeeping. That's one thing that only a beekeeper knows. If you ask a beekeeping question, it's like rabbis chewing over a piece of scripture. You get five different answers. Um, Yeah, and none of it correlates. Yes, right? Yeah. It's a very independent group of people. And so when I started reading your series, I thought, oh, this Josiah character, she just embodies that. Like, I just think you really brought that independence of personality into her. Like, I just feel her. I feel her from all the beekeepers that I've met, you know? Well, when I first went to my first beekeeping club, which is a fabulous club, by the way. They really do a lot to promote beekeeping in the state of Kentucky, Bluegrass Beekeeper Association. I was the only woman there. Mm. It was all men. And I looked around to see who controls this association. Because mm. that's who you want to talk to. Yeah. And I soon discovered that this is uh, old-timer farmers because they needed the bees for the crops and computer people interested in beekeeping because bees are logical and these people had logical minds and so they were attracted to a logical evolving insect i think beekeepers are are constantly researching too so mm-hmm. it's interesting to me that, that you would make that observation about people in um involved in data um i read about you that you had won multiple at the state level beekeeping awards is that what's behind you are the ribbons behind you beekeeping oh yes those are all my beekeeping awards look at that that's amazing (laughs) i'm telling you it's very competitive i had no idea how competitive was (laughs) but uh, my bees were good girls oh oh that's lovely and they did the best they can they brought in really good honey you know, I had like a, in Kentucky, you can have three different harvests. You can have the spring harvest, which is usually um, black locust honey, clear, and it's uh, very sweet. It's not my favorite honey. And then you have the clover and the wildflower honey, and then you have uh, the fall honey, which is kind of bitter in Kentucky. I don't care for that honey. Okay. I love that you just talked about the flavors of honey. One of the, my favorite books when I was keeping was called The Honey Connoisseur. There's lots of books about beekeeping out there, but this one has to do about the varietals and the flavors. And and it's exactly what you just said. It's connected to what the bees have been pollinating, what the bees have been harvesting. The nectar they bring in. Kentucky produces 30 different types of honey and it ranges all the way from clear, it looks like water, to all the way to dark brown or black, which is buckwheat honey. I just think that's something that not a lot of people realize is that it's almost like varietals of wine. Yes. They are so tied to place. It's a taste of place. Like you're saying very specifically, this is what Kentucky has, you know, and even regions of Kentucky probably. 
Well, you've been around those old timer uh, uh, beekeepers who can just taste honey and they can tell you what it is and where it came from. And if they know the farmer or the beekeeper, they say, oh, I can tell you which pasture this came from. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. They, they are experts in it. Yeah. It's so readily available. Honey is so readily available and yet such a unique, um, specific to place uh, experience when you really get to the local level, when you really get to the farmer's market, like all of that, identifying it with place. And I'll try to get back on track with the storytelling. So place and setting, it's like a character in your storytelling. Can you talk a little bit about how important place is to your stories? Well, the Josiah Reynolds Mysteries takes place in the Bluegrass, which is a very glamorous place in Kentucky. It's where all the horse farms are. This is where the horse major horses, uh, horse racing is done. Uh, we have Keeneland Race Course. And um, this is where all the antebellum homes are. This is where the, all the aristocrats home. And they were first brought in uh, through um, the Cumberland Gap by Daniel Boone and others. And then um, others came uh, on the Ohio River and, and came across land. Um, so they came from the north and the south. And uh, they settled this area and they immediately started growing livestock and horses because of the limestone bed that we're on, which provides nutrients in the grass, which makes very strong bones for animals. Oh, wow. That's why all these horses are here. That's why all this horse racing is here. So Josiah lives in a very glamorous place with all these rich aristocrats. And she herself um, was at one time very glamorous and moneyed, and she has lost all that through uh, incidents that were beyond her control. Her husband uh, wants to um, divorce her, and he hid the money. He hid all her money. So in the first book, she's basically almost bankrupt in uh, the farm that she lives. And she lives in this fantastic mid-century house. She also lives on the Palisades. The Palisades is a cliff system that borders on the Kentucky River. It's um, a very unusual landmass that the bluegrass just comes across the plain and then it just drops off oh. into the river. Um, a lot of people don't even know the Palisades exist because they've never been on the Kentucky River. So, but it does, and you can see for miles, you can see like for 60 miles. You have this place where the Civil War happened. You have this place where the Shawnee and the Cherokee fought the white man for control of this land. You have all these battles. There's a reason it's called the dark and bloody ground. Of all the fighting that has happened in central Kentucky for control of this land, so I try to incorporate that, that this is a land of mystery. This is a land of bloodshed. And this is a land where people keep their secrets well. That is a good place to pause and hear some of Josiah's story. You are going to hear the very beginning. We're going back to book one, page one in the series. And there will be bees. This is from Death by a Honeybee, 
Written by Abigail Keem. I knew something was wrong as I turned the corner around the copse of black walnut trees where morning doves roosted. The stillness of the gray-breasted birds perched in a dull slash on a tree limb contrasted with the clamorous buzzing of thousands of bees. As though readying for battle, their thunderous racket was an alarm that meant danger to anyone or anything that chanced upon them in their harried state. As a mother knows the meaning of her baby's whimpering, so a beekeeper understands the droning of her bees. I thought an animal might have disturbed them. A raccoon, or maybe a deer, had kicked over a hive. That alone would cause them to be anxious and make it difficult for me to work with them. I hurried past the vigilant doves, their heads swiveling in my direction. Coming around a hedge of honeysuckle, I encountered a six-foot-high wall of enraged bees hovering between their white hives and me, a glittering wave of golden insects ready to inflict painful stings on anything deemed hostile. Thank goodness I had worn my thick white cotton bee suit as honeybees hurled themselves at my veil in a panic. To be accosted this aggressively was unnerving, even for the most experienced beekeeper. I felt my stomach muscles tighten. Talk about a gut feeling. Babies, babies, I cooed. Settle down, settle down. Then I saw the source of their fear and revulsion. The metal cover from the most populous beehive had been heedlessly thrown on the ground, and wooden rectangle frames full of baby brood lay abandoned next to it. Thousands of young nurse bees frantically tried to protect this nursery full of eggs and wax-capped unborn bees by covering the frames with their bodies. This violation alone would make honeybees angry, but I saw that someone was bent over and plunged face down into the open hive, which made them even wilder. The person's arms hung down outside the hive. I noticed the fists were clenched. What are you doing? I yelled, startled at the sight of a strange person with his head and shoulders inside one of my hives. Who are you? Get away from there. I stepped back, waiting for a response. My chest tightened. Hoping to stave off an asthma attack, I reached in my pocket for my buterol spray but realized my veil would stop me from getting the medicine to my mouth. I breathed more slowly. I inhaled the musky odor of the bees, along with the heavy, cloying scent of evergreen hedges behind their hives. Somewhere in the distance, I heard the growl of a tractor cutting sweet hay. I flinched at the sudden piercing call of a red-winged blackbird. One of the very first blurbs that you have in the the first book, Death by Honeybee, is was written by Sue Grafton. 
who people will recognize as the the author of the Alphabet series, the Kinsey Milhone mystery series, um, with A is for alphabet, and almost an entire alphabet of mysteries uh, with the same characters. And her blurb wishes you success with your endeavor and says, I trust your heart at work on the next. And so I just thought, you know, here you are 13 years later, 18, 19 mysteries in with these characters, with Josiah. And I, I wondered, is the work that Sue Grafton mentioned harder or easier today? Oh, wow. What a question. Um, I'm running out of ways to kill people. <laughs> but let me tell you a little bit about Sue Grafton. When I read her book, when it first came out, A is for Alibi, I thought it was a masterpiece. The hair on the back of my neck stood up. And I said, they're going to be reading this book 100 years from now. Um, it was a wonderful piece of mystery writing. I contacted Sue Grafton because she's a Kentucky gal. As you know, she's from Louisville. And I wrote her a letter, and she wrote me back. And it was typed like Kinsey Milhone, her protagonist, would do because her uh, books take place in the 80s. Uh, people were just getting used to computers, but most people typed on a typewriter. So she sent me a typewriter uh, written letter and signed it. And I saw her uh, a year later at the Kentucky Book Fair, and I uh, introduced myself, and I said, I'm the lady that wrote you the letter, and uh, thank your secretary for typing that letter. She goes, oh, honey, I typed that letter. <laughs> she wrote me this very long letter. Um, giving me advice and what to do, and um, and every year she sent me a Christmas card. We stayed in touch, and uh, she she was a great gal, and I was really sorry that she didn't get to finish her series. She was just a few books from it, but anyway, if you haven't read A is for Alibi by Sue Grafton, do so. It, you will really enjoy it. Agree, agree. I remember discovering it, and. Every bit of it is still vibrant in my memory. And that is a testimony to great storytelling. Yes, it is. And so that really, I mean, it's also kind of part of another question I wanted to have for you, which is each story you have, you have really delved into new things. You know, it feels like I'm, uh, every time I read one of them, I'm, there's something new about it. Like in the, uh, one of them you recognize um, in your, in your acknowledgement, spindle tops. Oh, Spindletop, yeah. Right. When you do a series and this work that can, that um, Sue Grafton is talking about is not just about finding new ways of killing people, but also just all the other layers of of work, of research that you have to do to make each one of those stories work, right? Um, you got to keep it fresh. Yeah. And relevant for readers. Um I do keep um, reoccurring characters in my storyline because people enjoy them so much. I would think the uh, the bluegrass is much as a character than as the actual characters uh, because uh, there is so much history here and it is so tangled. And I think Faulkner was right when he says the past is never past because it isn't here. People are still fighting the Civil War here. Mm. Um, so I wanted to write all about that. And I wanted to write about the warts as well as the beauty marks. And I wanted to make Lexington and this whole area, which I 
feel is in a very special area come alive for people. This is what it's like to live here. These are the people that live here. Now, I'll take you one character. I was only going to have this character in the first book, Franklin, who's a very flamboyant gay man. I got so many emails about him saying, we love Franklin. We want to see him in the next book. And I had already written the second book, so I had to go back and incorporate him. And he has been a character almost in all the books, and people just love him. You know, you can fall in love with a series. You can fall in love with a character, and you know the author is going to take care of you. You know it's a series, and that character is going to be there for you in the next book and in the next book. And so there's something very comforting about tuning in, picking up the book, the next book, and knowing that those people will be there. It's so interesting what you just said about readers actually contacting you and saying, oh, please give me more of that character. I want to also say that these are in the cozy genre. So that's another way you're sort of taking care of your readers, right? Can you explain what the cozy genre is and why you feel at home there? Well, I never really understood that I was writing cozy until I was told I was writing cozy. I just thought I was writing mystery stories because I do write about serious subjects. Yes. The cozy is supposed to be light and frothy. Although Agatha Christie is considered a cozy writer. She's considered to write dark cozy. What is a cozy? Well, a cozy is a mystery where the violence is off stage. You may say a person was knifed, but you don't describe the person being knifed. Or a person was shot, but you don't describe it. And you don't have sex in it. You can intimate sex, but you don't describe it. So it's not graphic. Everything takes off stage. It's sort of like the old Golden Age movies when they're going to be intimate. Uh, they pan to the uh, curtains flowing in the window. So that's what a cozy is. And I will say, I don't have a lot of graphic stuff in it. I hardly use any um, cuss words in it. Uh, she uh, wrote, uh, Josiah does cuss in French. And, but I do write about serious subjects that are going on, racism. I hadn't ever really thought about that from the author's perspective, that sometimes maybe being labeled as cozy might feel uh, like, I, wait, I don't fit in that box. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be fluffy. I'm not trying to be unrealistic right? Like you're trying to be actually have real topics. Yeah. I think every single niche that we try to put authors in is difficult because stories are so, uh, they don't fit in boxes very well. Right. Correct. Yeah. So I want to also talk about the other thing that's behind you is uh, all of your book covers. You have definitely been purposeful in your covers they 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 fit well together there's an there's an absolute style to the whole series how did you come to that what was that process like well i tell you that was that was harder than uh writing the books is to have a branded look for her um i saw posters around town in lexington very stylized and very unusual and i called up the company which is called cricket press and i talked to the lady who was one of the artists and I said have you ever done a book cover and she goes no I said would you like to try one and she says well I'll give it a go and um, I would tell her what my vision was and and and, and she creates it wow so it's a local company 
and now they do book covers for a lot of people. So I was glad to be the first one. The last question I always ask authors, uh, the name of the podcast is Desideratum. It means the desire for essential things. And when I was a little girl, my parents had the poem Desiderata hanging up in our house. And it starts, um, go placidly amid the noise and haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. And it's full then line after line of all these great life lessons. And so for you, uh, for you, what is most essential? Harmony. Mm. Harmony within my family, harmony with my work, harmony with nature. Mm. One thing I learned about honeybees is that as a beekeeper, I'm responsible for them. Um, they have facial recognition. That is why when a beekeeper dies, Somebody has to tell the bees that their shepherd is gone. That's an old European custom. I learned so much from those little insects mm. that they just went about their business and they just didn't bother anybody unless they were bothered themselves. And there was harmony there. And I learned a great deal of harmony from these insects, don't you? I agree. I think that's beautiful. Um, I'm not sure I've ever heard it expressed as harmony, but I think you're right. Everything in balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then they also have to be in balance with everything else. They are relying on the balance of nature. True. I'm sure you did like I did. I would go and lay down by the highs and just listen to them. Beekeepers know the frequency of their bees humming. They know if they are happy. They know if something's not right. They, it's, it's a partnership. And you learn a lot from that. And from that, you start observing nature as a whole. Yes, I don't remember where it comes from, but if you study anything in the minute, if you study anything tiny, study all the details of this one little thing, what you eventually see is everything. Yes, yes. And bees, for me, definitely felt that way. That you couldn't spend time with a hive and not eventually start seeing everything else. I've had so much fun talking to you about bees. Yeah, beekeepers, when they get together, they can talk forever about bees. Yes, I love what you just said about the, the sound of them. I think that's really so true. And part of harmony, part of harmony is paying attention. Well, that's what writers do. They observe. And you can't write anything if you don't observe things. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Abigail, hearing about her bees and her characters as much as I did. You can find her active on all social media platforms as Abigail Keem. That's K-E-A-M, author. I'll put a link in the show notes to her website where you can find all her books. Thanks for being here. And as always, thanks for listening.